Hello and welcome to Double Take, the Newton Investment Management podcast about the big beefy themes hitting the investment world. I'm Rafe Lewis. I head up Newton's specialist investment research teams. And with me as always is Jack Encarnacio, an investigative investment researcher here. And this episode, we are talking about what could be a reshoring renaissance here in the United States and North America, and what could be an attendant CapEx supercycle that needs to fuel that renaissance. So here's how we're thinking about this. This is the theme we are playing with here. We've had a supply chain crisis roiling the planet. We have decoupling with China and a Cold War and maybe even worse tensions if something happens in Taiwan. We have a massive U.S. infrastructure bill that will spread billions of dollars out for a decade in the roads and bridges and tunnels and broadband, you name it. We have a rise of economic nationalism generally. We have both major parties in the United States who seem to want to bring jobs back. So the question is, will they come back? And if so, how are they going to be funded? And how is it going to not destroy these manufacturing companies' bottom lines to do it? Yeah, very meaty subject this time on Double Take Rafe. And joining us is Harry Moser, uh, who for 25 years was at the helm of a manufacturing firm called GF Machining Solutions. Uh, and he eventually uh, founded the Reshoring Initiative, which is an organization uh, devoted to bringing back manufacturing jobs here to the U.S. Harry also has a global perspective in terms of countries other than the U.S., such as Mexico, Canada, the U.K., uh, that might also be interested in reshoring jobs from what has become in the past, what, two decades, the world's factory in China and surrounding uh, Asian countries. And Harry, it's a real pleasure to have you on Double Take. Thank you so much for joining us. It's wonderful to be here, Jack and Rafe. I'm, I'm, I'm delighted. This is great. And, you know, by the way, folks, after we talk to Harry, we're going to have on Keith Cochran, who's the Chief Operating Officer and President of Cooler Technology, which uh, we'll explain a little more when we get into that interview. But the long and short of it is they've done some reshoring, they've done some nearshoring, and we're going to hear some first-person accounts here. All right, Harry, why don't we dive right into it? I guess the first thing I'd like to do is just kind of posit to you the thesis that we're, we're bandying about here at Newton, which is that the combination of all these macro forces could lead to a just kind of a boom in reshoring, and that should lead to a CapEx supercycle of sorts. What do you make of that thesis? Um, basically agree. The uh, first, the trend has been substantial and fairly continuous for the last 12 years. We, uh, we, we founded the Reshoring Initiative in 2010, and in that year, 6,000 jobs were announced to come back. The, we had a temporary peak in 2017, about 160,000, so up substantially, uh, but, uh, but hit a peak uh, driven by the tax and regulatory cuts, fell off due to the uh, trade war, business uncertainty, came back up with COVID because the U.S. had to reshore so much PPE, uh, medicines, all these things we found out we were missing, and then came up last year, 2021, hit 260,000 manufacturing jobs driven by all those newer things that you mentioned, the disruptions of the supply chain, the tension with China, um, the, the, the whole variety of things that have gone on. And now th this year, if the, first, if the year continues at the rate of the first quarter, will hit 400,000 manufacturing jobs announced coming back. So just a, 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 a huge volume already. 
So, Harry, uh, help orient us in terms of why so many uh, United States companies, for example, have chosen China to source labor and materials in the past, you know, 20 years. And why, if, in fact, that equation is changing? I know you folks have a few different ways of slicing and dicing the cost benefits of sourcing from China. What, what's sort of the current explanation and, and data that would explain what's happening now? You know, the, the longer term, you know, the, the, that eight or 10 year movement was due to China wages going up. They went up 10, 15 percent a year. The currency at times appreciating. So the, their, their dollar wage cost has gone from like 50 cents an hour to six or seven dollars an hour. So, so a lot of that advantage has, has gone away. Uh, so that's a piece of it. But also companies understanding the issues and the problems associated with offshoring. So there's a, a professor at Ohio State, uh, John Gregg, and he, he got four, found four companies that had offshored and reshored. He asked them, why'd you offshore? Because the wages were so much lower, the costs were so much lower, it looked great. Then a couple of years later, why'd you reshore? Well, we found all the problems of delivery, quality, communication, travel, inventory, stocking out, all these other things. And it, it, there wasn't enough uh, cost differential to justify all the problems, so we reshored. And so over the over that eight or ten year period, it was companies gaining experience and finding out that it, it wasn't so good. And then now the last two three years, it's been the impact of repeated supply chain disruptions, the the Suez Canal, the the COVID uh, embargoes and shipments, the, the boats uh, lined up at the LA port. And hanging over all of it today, like sort of like a sort of Damocles, is the the risk of China decoupling, especially driven by Taiwan. There's China has uh, said that if the America Competes Act is implemented, which would uh, make the U.S. more competitive, specifically with China, that China will stop shipping a broad range of products, including automotive components. So, so companies, I'm getting calls. You know, almost every day now from companies, and and you can tell that somebody on the board or somebody high up has told them, we're not going to live with that risk anymore. You've got to do something about it. And so the you, Harry, you've got a series of all, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say this. This is a really interesting transformation because what I'm hearing is the push to offshore, as Jack was alluding to, was largely kind of an immediate cost reduction scenario, and it was worth the operational risk to do it. And now the risk equation is kind of the horse pulling the cart. Is that what I'm hearing? Yes, the, the risk equation is is driving them to do at least research and preferably do something. And now as they come to us and say, can, can, we, need, we, we, we were told we should do this, what do we do? We say, use total cost, look at all the costs, the duty freight, carrying cost of inventory, all these risks, all the costs that are associated all those years, that you ignored, <laughs> but now that now that you've been told, now that the now that the mantra is to bring it back as opposed to take it away, um, they're starting to look at those costs and seeing that indeed the the, the equation balances out. Not not all. I, I'm, I'm sure every, everything can come back. U.S. can't produce that much. We don't have the capacity. But but it's it's obvious that that major major portions are, are coming back. And Harry, if we're going to really buy into this as a long-term phenomenon, right, if it's truly a theme that we can lean into to invest into, we'd have to believe that once these supply chain, you know, crimps and this crisis kind of abates, 
the companies will still believe they have to mitigate that risk, right? So are you getting the sense that there's legs to this or is this just a temporary reaction to a temporary phenomenon and we'll have a reversion to the mean? Well, the Suez Canal was a temporary phenomenon. COVID is sort of temporary. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's abating a bit. But the China uh, risk, the possibility of decoupling, I, I see no reason to, to believe that will go away anytime in the next 20 to 50 years. I believe that that risk will stay there. And as long as it's there, and probably getting worse, you know, probably the risk will proceed to be increasing. So I, I believe that, that that dynamic will stay in place for, for decades to come. You said something interesting there, Harry, in that companies in calculating how they could benefit from offshoring jobs would sort of ignore the tariffs, the duties, the freight, the cost involved in actually moving the finished products or whatever, the components, uh, back to your you know distribution in the United States, for example. Now, why was that cost ignored for so long? And is it only now kind of a daunting offset because of the increase in U.S. tariffs on China-sourced goods? And if those tariffs go down again, do those duty and freight costs sort of make China look more appealing again if they go down? You know, freight costs have peaked. Uh, the tariffs are, are, are huge. A lot of them are 25%. Uh, will the freight costs come down? Yes. Uh, they're not going to stay where they are. Enough boats have been ordered. The, you know, the dynamics are going to change. And freight costs will come significantly back down. The, I don't believe the tariffs are going to go away. Uh, the, most of them are at 25%. There's about $550 billion of Chinese imports at 25% tariff, in addition to regular duties. There are a number of exclusions that have been granted to companies, let certain things through because they need them. And just uh, recently, the U.S. Trade Representative issued a statement saying that four years have passed since the tariff and it's time to review and that companies can request continuation. Let's keep the tariffs in place uh, for by July 5th for the first tranche of tariffs and by August 22nd for the second tranche. And I believe that all or most will be continued since our relationships with China is worse now than it was when the tariffs were put in place and the uh, and the, the administration does not look, want to look weak prior to the midterm election. So I, uh, I believe that the in general, the tariffs will continue. So, so I say freight down, ta tariffs staying where, roughly where they are, I believe. And then, so then what's left is, is this question of uh, decoupling. And that, that I believe will be permanent. So I, 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 and these, the, the tariffs are huge. When you take a 25% tariff and throw that in with normal freight and duty and carrying costs of inventory and risk of stocking out and so on, it, it, it shifts a huge amount of work back to the United States. So if they stay in place and the companies are worried about decoupling, I, I believe the trend will continue. But Harry, you know, pushing back against that a little bit, here in the United States, we have, well, labor availability is a problem. Labor costs skyrocketing. Materials costs and commodities skyrocketing. Um, you know, uh, the possibility of corporate taxes going up. So, I mean, is this a setup for U.S. manufacturers because they have to deal with all this supply chain risk, just being lower margin companies going forward because they have to take on all this additional cost over here? Or is that you know, getting away from the tariffs that you and Jack were just talking about, you know, does it, is it kind of a wash? 
Uh, uh, the uh, labor problem is a worldwide issue. There are shortages everywhere due to long COVID, due to early retirements, due to you know, all, all kinds of things that happen. The U.S., I think, is very, very typical of the rest of the world. And e even before any of this happened, there were sh manufacturing skilled workforce shortages because uh, so many of the uh, high school graduates, you know, want to go get an MBA and become a, a Wall Street analyst or something, as opposed to becoming a toolmaker or a welder, or precision machinist. And so the um, so that, that's a worldwide phenomenon. I've, I've read, I've talked to companies all over the world that describe that the Chinese are even having problems getting their youth to go into manufacturing. And so where, where those countries, the other countries are having declining uh, interest in working in manufacturing. In the U.S., it's perceived that coming out of high school, getting an apprenticeship gets you away from $100,000 or more of uh, tuition. You start making money immediately. Uh, you have the your company puts you sends you on to get an associate's degree, maybe a bachelor's degree eventually. A lot of people making a hundred thousand dollars a year with overtime starts to look pretty darn good. And uh, so, so I, I think we're on the up curve, and most of the rest of the world is on a down curve in terms of workforce. Now, it's not easy, and there's no question. There's eight hundred thousand job manufacturing job openings, and there's not enough people out there to fill them. So it's, it's not going to be easy. But but part of the solution is for society, for the students, the guidance counselors, to see that reshoring is happening, that the work isn't, we're not shutting down factories and moving work to China anymore. We're, we're shutting down factories in China, moving work to the U.S. So once again, it looks like a good career, which will make the recruitment portion more easily. So not easy. I agree with the job. Not easy. It's doable. The, uh, the material cost is very similar around the world. And if we have a tariff on steel, that might drive steel up here. But in general, Material costs are very similar around the world. Electricity cost is lower here. Uh, oil and natural gas costs are lower. So there's a, a, a fair number of uh, cost categories where the U.S. has an advantage. You mentioned the U.S. being typical of the rest of the world, Harry, in terms of wage inflation. I wonder to what degree this dialogue we're having about the United States reshoring jobs is also typical of so many other countries around the world that have chosen China as a manufacturing hub, or even neighboring countries like Malaysia and Vietnam. Do you have a flavor of that? Uh, let's take the UK, for instance. Uh, they've outshored quite a bit. Uh, how interested are they in, in much the same exercise, and are their economics any different in terms of reshoring jobs from China? Yeah, uh, maybe to put the UK in perspective, last time I looked, of our top 10 trading partners, only one did we have a trade surplus with, and that was the UK. So uh, that means the UK is relatively uncompetitive, even less competitive than the US. We both have big trade deficits. Um, but in terms of the UK specifically, uh, I visited <clears throat> maybe eight years ago a government office. I think it was BLS, something like that. And they had a program that claimed to have reshored a large amount of uh, automotive components to, to the auto assembly plants in the, in the UK. And I, and I have friends over in UK in, in something called the GTMA, it used to be the Gauge Tool and Machining Association. And they, they've, they're part, they're one of 30 leading industry trade associations that have formed Reshoring UK, which you can find at reshoring.uk online. And their purpose is to connect suppliers and buyers through a network portal and promote capabilities, form clusters 
get UK buyers and sellers talking to each other and finding out the benefits of, of sourcing locally instead of importing. So I believe it's happening there. It is happening there. Uh, we've had we've given presentations in Switzerland, Holland, uh, Canada, Mexico, uh, France. So there's there's interest around around the world. I'm sure there's more interest today than there was a couple of years ago when we gave the presentations. Now all this said, Harry, I wouldn't imagine that the owners of the Chinese factories uh, are just going to take this rolling over. That it's as easy as one day flipping a switch and saying, I no longer want to work with you anymore, despite perhaps existing contracts. Maybe there's intellectual property tied up in these factories that have been building things for you for so many years. Can you take us through sort of the troubleshooting exercises and the costs, really, of decoupling, so to speak, or at least no longer relying exclusively on China for your manufacturing? What what comes with that? Yeah, it depends very much on the manufacturing process that's involved. So, for example... If you're machining a, a uh, shaft out of bar stock using standard tooling, um, it's pretty easy. You, you send the, the CAD file, the CAM file, and the, the U.S. CNC shop makes it instead of the Chinese shop. So very easy. You don't have to physically move anything. Everything is digital. You already have it. Uh, but if you might, on the other hand, if you have heavily tooled molding, stamping, casting, things where there's $50,000, $100,000 of tooling per part number, now you've got to either get the tooling out of China, and that can be very difficult because unless you have very good paperwork saying that the tooling is yours, it's typically owned by the factory there and you're not going to get it out. So now you've got to have more tooling built over here at a cost 40 to 50% higher than the Chinese cost of tooling, and uh, you've got problems. Uh, so so if, the, if the work is being outsourced, well, that's somebody else's problem. You might have to pay for the tooling. If the work's coming in-house into your own factory, then your company, the guy who's the person who's making the decision, has, is going to bear all those costs right transparently. Uh, the We would say look at the annual total cost of ownership saving, including the risks, et cetera, and see how much that is. And if, and if, it's, if there isn't any saving, generally don't do it. Once you... Eat, Again, once you've considered all the risks, but if there are savings, then those savings have to be enough to provide a payback on the one-time cost, on the cost of transitioning the tooling, the startup, all the you know all the hassles you already have with a new supplier. So it has to be a good payback on that, or or it doesn't make sense to do. Uh, another consideration: the the Chinese factory may become a competitor. So there's lots of cases where people have pulled work out of China, and then the factory there retains the tooling, retains the intellectual property, and starts producing and becoming a competitor, at least in China and perhaps around the world, depending on your, your patent protection. Sociologically, uh, if you uh, move work to the U.S., positive sociologically, you're repairing the devastation of 5 million manufacturing jobs that were lost to offshoring. Whereas for China, it will, if, you, if enough is pulled out, it will slow their future growth but it comes at a time when the Chinese workforce is dropping at about 3 million people per year and workers are starting to avoid manufacturing anyway. So sociologically, I'd say, at least from the perspective of the U.S. or the U.K., you know, the, the local market, I, I, I would say this sociologically, it's a positive. But, you know, somebody in a, in a poor developing country might disagree couple of good threads to pull on there, Harry, and I'd like to do it before we let you go. So 
you know, uh, you know, if we're thinking about a capex supercycle kind of emerging from this reshoring and and nearshoring that's going to be going on into say Mexico or Canada, right? As people are just kind of de-risking the supply chain a little bit here, getting it closer to home. Uh, what I wonder about is, you know, we of course want to know who are going to be the beneficiaries of this. Generally speaking, we've thought about, of course, factory automation and things like that. But I wonder. You know, as you talk to companies that are looking at reshoring, are they talking about building kind of greenfield manufacturing sites here in the United States with all brand new shiny equipment? Or is this just kind of, hey, let's find a, you know, a contract manufacturer who's going to maybe incrementally add some machines here, a little automation there, but nothing really grandiose? The most of the work that comes back, I think a little more than half of the work that comes back shop, the, the uh, chemical producer, it goes to somebody else. You know, you, you bring the work back, get the pieces made by somebody else, and there's more jobs at that level than there is at the assembly level. Now, some of those contract manufacturers are going to build shiny new factories with new equipment. And, and since all of them are operating essentially at capacity now, almost all are operating at capacity to the extent that they commit to uh, producing you know, 10, 20% more output, they are going to have to buy new equipment. They're going to have to automate, especially automate to work their way around this shortage of workforce problems. And so the, um, you know, whether it goes in-house or it goes out-house, uh, there's going to be uh, in, in significant investment. The, the, the one thing, one of the lean experts, Jim Womack at the Lean Enterprise Institute, he says, lean shore. So when you bring the work back, do not put it in the same old factory with the same equipment and the same uh, inefficient workflow with the people uh, you know, who, who have done the work the same way for you know, 30 years. Instead, get, get new equipment, improve the flow through the factory, train the workers, engage the workers. And, and if you do that, you'll have lean shored and you'll, your costs and your productivity and everything will improve dramatically. So there's, there's a lot of considerations. And, and that leads right into the next question. You kind of hinted at it a little bit on the sociological end of things. So that brings up the, you know, the great acronym that all investors are thinking about these days, which is ESG. And like, for example, I'm kind of hearing that if you're bringing work back from China to the U.S., I would assume that this is a positive ESG move for these manufacturers. I'm assuming, for example, that the electrical generation to power the manufacturing sites here in the U.S., I would assume is a lot cleaner than the coal-fired plant over in uh, in China, that kind of thing. So can you talk about whether that is a factor here and kind of how you're thinking about that? Yeah, that's, that's certainly a very important factor. In fact, our, our TCO calculation, this software that we have online, uh, in the new version that will come out in about three months, we'll have uh, ESG factors built into it that will, in, in which the user will be able to go in and, and place his or her product on a continuum of products, you know, T-shirts at one end, maybe uh, nuclear reactors at the other or something. And, and, and we will have done some estimates of what that environmental impact is for that product because some products are very electrical intense and others are not. So, for example, we, we did a study of aluminum die casting sourced in China, shipped to the U.S. versus sourced here. And mainly because of that difference in, in the uh, environmental load per kilowatt hour produced because of the coal in China, uh, the uh, environmental impact was reduced 25 to 50% by doing it here instead of doing it there and, and shipping it here. 
So that's a major factor. Most of the ESG community is not cognizant of it. I have not read a single ESG paper that talks about, like when they rate companies, ABC, one, two, three, whatever. I've never seen one that says, where do you produce your products and how much of it do you ship across the world? So we're, we're starting to reach out to the ESG community and get them to start thinking about that. And I, ho- I hope some of your listeners will bring those subjects up with the companies with which they deal. A lot to chew on and a fantastic overview. Harry Moser, the founder of the Reshoring Initiative, getting us started this time on Double Take. We thank you so much, Harry, and best of luck in your work. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Welcome back from that lovely musical interlude. Okay, so we've heard about the macro drivers that are serving as the collective catalyst of a potential deglobalization and reshoring boom. Now let's dive deeper with a guest who has real-life experience reshoring jobs to North America from China. Joining us now is Keith Cochran, who is president and chief operating officer of Cooler Technology Group, a San Diego, California-based company that makes specialized carbon fiber thermal management systems for all manner of electrical and battery-powered machines in the defense, space, consumer electronic applications. Keith has spent more than a quarter century as an executive and manager of disparate manufacturing entities globally, including a stint at Jabil, where he managed nearly 50 original equipment manufacturers and managed entire country operations in India and Brazil. Keith, welcome to Double Take. It is a real pleasure to have you. Thanks, Jack. Appreciate it. Well, this is really exciting, Keith, because, you know, uh, Jack and I spend our careers trying to, you know, speak to people for primary accounts of how they go about their business. And uh, this definitely qualifies as that. So to hear from an actual reshoring, nearshoring executive is terrific. I just want to remind our listeners, by the way, that, you know, we do not promote or or denigrate companies here on the podcast. The idea in bringing Keith on the show is not to pump cooler, but rather to hear a first-person narrative, a case study in one company that made the big, bold decision to reshore and nearshore operations amid massive global cross-currents. So, Keith, uh, let's dive right into it. Can you explain what Cooler's operations looked like before you folks decided to bring some operations back to North America? Where were you sourcing components and systems? What did your geographic footprint look like beforehand? That kind of thing. Yeah, our primary outsourcing effort was in China, uh, in the Shanghai area, uh, primarily. And uh, that was manufacturing for us our thermal runaway suppression materials. And... We got to a, a situation where just with the, the actions of the Chinese government, we made a decision that it was more appropriate for us. And, and, and quite frankly, also with the increase in logistics cost, we decided to uh, bring that near shore for us and uh, make that move just to improve our cost for one and improve our flexibility. So, Keith, are we talking about sort of beginning with the, the Trump tariff uh, frictions and then carrying through into the supply chain logistics, or were the tariffs less of an impetus to start thinking about this? I think for us, uh, the tariffs really weren't a major driver for us. I think uh, logistics cost and flexibility were really the primary for us. Uh, we've had 
uh, manufacturing in other countries as well. And for those situations, it was a little more of a tax structure issue versus what we were running up against in China. That's really interesting because this is one of the things we've really been trying to dive into is to understand the calculus. You know, someone like you, you're in a C-suite, you're looking at operations and and contract manufacturing, and, and in some cases for some companies, they own the manufacturing assets overseas too. You know, I'd, I'd love to, to hear a lot more about that cost-benefit analysis. Uh, and, and in particular, you were saying it sounds like that it was actually the Chinese government's actions that may have been the original catalyst here rather than something that the U.S. government did to try to incentivize bringing, uh, you know, operations back home. Can you talk a little bit more about, you know, what was happening in China in specific? Well, I think for us, cost of labor, for one, um, there's there is pretty significant wage inflation going on. And we were starting to see some of the, uh, the friction, as you mentioned earlier, uh, between the two countries. And I don't see that getting less over time. I see it most likely increasing over time. So that was a concern for us, a concern for our customers. And we really needed to get more flexibility into our supply chain. And so for a period of time, we just made the decision to dual source our materials so we could have a, a buffer, uh, get that near shore, and then make the transition out of China. So in that nearshoring, um, was it a deal where you had to contract w- with new manufacturing capacity here in Mexico and the United States? Or did you folks build up your own capacity? What was it like weaning off of those factories in China? Yeah, we started out by bringing back our, our low volume manufacturing into San Diego area. And we had done that in the past. We were already set up to do our prototypes and research and development activities in the San Diego facility. So we just brought in additional uh, technicians and uh, direct labor in order to expand capacity there so we could handle small to mid-sized batches of our product. But then for our large volumes, uh, we went ahead uh, and took a move down into Mexico for that with a a supplier that uh, was already well positioned uh, to uh, manufacture those products for us. Now, you know, you talked about wage inflation in China, and for sure we've we've seen that for years now to the point where, you know, a lot of the, I guess, the, you know, the companies in apparel, for example, and footwear have been moving operations over into, you name it, Malaysia, Vietnam, et cetera. But of course, we have tremendous wage inflation here in the U.S., and I think we're at a higher level no matter how you slice and dice it. So I'm curious, you know, in bringing some jobs and some work back from China you know, how did you decide what to bring to the U.S., what to bring to Mexico, and and what to leave in China, if anything? Uh, we've made the decision not to leave anything in China, uh, just, just so you know on that one. Uh, with regards to, to how we kind of went through this, we did a lowest landing cost model. So we take into account where's our point of consumption with our customer, uh, what level of uh, demand flexibility do we need to support for them, take a look at our logistics cost as well as the time uh, of transport, you know, because at that point you're building up a a lot of inventory, mostly on the water. And took a look at, can we resource our actual raw materials to get those out of China? Wouldn't really help us a lot if we pull out of China on the manufacturing side, if a majority of the materials were coming out of China. So then we're just, you know, we needed to change the narrative and make sure that we had our raw materials um, readily available out of the source 
of manufacture, whether that's US or down in Mexico. And so, you know, we just, like I said, work through a lowest landed cost model in order to make a determination. That's very good. When you talk about lowest landed cost, just for the sake of our listeners, if you could extrapolate just a little bit, what goes into lowest landed cost? Yeah, the, you know, the elements I just mentioned, which are, you know, cost of logistics, for example, point of consumption. If I have a customer that has wild demand fluctuations, but then I need to put their product on a boat for a month, that may not satisfy them. Then you have to look at buffer inventories and things like that. So all of that inventory carrying cost has to be considered. Um, you know, obviously now the, the just the cost of fuel is driving huge uh, concerns with the, the cost of freight. So all of those things come in come into play. Oh, that's great. You had mentioned, and we'd asked about wage inflation, um, and, and wage inflation, in fact, in China. How did you balance out? Surely, again, wage inflation present in the United States and Mexico as well. Did you decide maybe we pay a little more for labor to offset the, those risks of you know being stuck on on a boat somewhere? Or how did you calculate out the difference in how much you have to pay folks? Yeah, for the small batches that we do in North, in, in I should say in the United States, uh, it's a it's one off, you know, type activity, right? Um, so we're talking about products that will be configured specifically for an application, and they're not generic products that we would sell broadly. So those one offs uh, have the margin available for us to onshore those uh, without having a lot of concern. In fact, the engineering cost is you know the significant driver so their direct labor costs not so much and our engineering was always based out of san diego and continues to be today um hope that kind of answers the question there mexico you know has had certainly wage inflation but not nearly to the level of china Oh, this is really terrific. It's, it's actually generating several more questions for me. So one of the things we've been looking at when we think about this reshoring and nearshoring, uh, you know, narrative, the deglobalization, you know, we've been predicting and wondering if there's going to be a kind of a CapEx super cycle here in the U.S. and maybe in North America writ large uh, because of some of this reshoring and nearshoring going on. And I wonder if you guys found a way in bringing you know, some work and some projects back or all of your projects back here, uh, if where uh, automation came into play and if you found new tools, robotics, uh, AI, et cetera, to, uh, you know, uh, create more efficiencies in the process along the way. Well, we certainly do a lot of automation as a company, uh, but our automation has always been based in San Diego. We never had that in, in volume in China. In China, uh, the technology that we had deployed there for manufacturing of the product is fairly simplistic. It, it's not an overly complicated and cancel and uh, capital intensive uh, product. So getting it moved down to Mexico didn't require any extensive capital deployment uh, for the large volume. Now, how uh, easy or hard, I guess, Keith, do Chinese manufacturers make it to, to move off of their factories and capacity. Is it really as simple as flipping a switch? We're just not going to send you guys business anymore? Or are there costs involved in transitioning out of China uh, into Mexico or the U.S. or wherever it may be? There certainly can be. Uh, not in our case. It was as simple as uh, we just stopped giving additional purchase orders and uh, you know made that transition down. So for us as a company, not very difficult 
in the, in past life, for sure, there can be tremendous cost uh, incurred. You can also get into uh, having to pay for the retention of the labor. You end up paying premiums to have that retention of labor as soon as you send the signal that you're pulling out of the location. Uh, you can run into situations like that. I've experienced situations where they basically lock the gates and until you uh, pay what they deem uh, is appropriate for you to exit, you don't get your equipment and test fixtures out of there. It's occurred. So, so that's a case where you literally own the machines, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah. When you talk about retention, um, I was a bit confused there. Why are you obliged to retain anybody in China if you're leaving? Well, what they typically will do, and not in all cases, but as soon as you send the signal that I'm pulling out of your facility, when there's a tight labor market going on, those people just disappear off of manufacturing your product. Oh, I see. Like abandoning the job site. I see, right? Correct. Keith, can I take the flip side of Jack's question, which I think was terrific, and and your answer was really enlightening. And and I'm curious on the U.S. side here, or even on the Mexican side, did the governments in North America do anything to sweeten the deal to bring you guys back? No, not not in our case. And in the the cases that, that we've seen that, it needs to be a very large scale in order for you to really get any types of tax authority support and, and, you know, incentives. You know, because the reason I ask is uh, you, you guys are in part selling into the U.S. government, right? The DOD, NASA, et cetera. You know, I would have thought that they have, uh, you know, a tremendous incentive to be sourcing as much from North America as possible, even if it's not necessarily a, you know, a hyper uh, sensitive application like a weapon system or something like that. But it sounds like you're saying you guys made the decision. They weren't really a part of it. You just you did it more based on your kind of cost and risk analysis. That's correct. It, ours was not a decision based on any kind of government incentives. And trust me, we look for them. I mean, we're more than happy to take <laughs> advantage of those. But uh, so so far, no no luck in finding them. Yes. To be clear, the door is open, right, <laughs> to anyone who wants to approach you. Um, that's interesting. You know, should we think about this, you know, in your prior work, in your prior life, so to speak, you did have global experience, and it wasn't just about moving, you know, some capacity back to a U.S. domiciled company. Should we think about this any differently for folks, let's say, in the U.K. or Europe, who, you know, in a similar sort of deglobalization trend, want to bring capacity back? I mean, we think about, you know, the Russia-Ukraine conflict and the supply chain uncertainty that's created in certain commodities and exports. Do you have a sense for us if the picture is any different, more or less complicated to bring jobs from China back to European countries or the UK? I think they uh, face the same challenges. And I think in a certain way, they actually have even bigger challenges because they just simply don't have the direct labor pool available for large manufacturing jobs uh, that require manual labor to, you know, to process it. So in situations where it's highly automated, a low headcount manufacturing facility, you can bring that back into the UK. But once you start talking about needing um, large quantities of direct labor, those pools just don't aren't readily available in the UK.
So, by the way, Keith, I, you know, I, we should probably just be asking you straight up. You know, we have a thesis that there could be a kind of a capex supercycle or reshoring boom of sorts. I wonder a if you subscribe to that, and b if you do. You know, how long should it take to see this kind of thing proliferating and really starting to impact the U.S. economy? Like, I don't understand exactly how long it took you guys to move this one kind of process or set of processes back to the near shore and onshore? Well, between looking at our model and and bringing our new supplier up to speed, it took us about nine months. But again, our, our processes were much more simplistic. For more complicated processes, and depending upon the scale of those processes, the, the transition can take well over a year uh, to get redundant manufacturing put in place to build inventories such that you can transition test fixtures and machinery and so forth uh, closer to shore. Most of those are heavy equipment. They're coming via the water. So you need to be prepared with uh, quite a bit of finished goods and you know building that inventory, depending upon the capacity at your current location, that also can take time. So a lot of planning involved, a lot of factors to consider uh, before you start making that move. Um, and it's not just for us nearshoring and, and onshoring again. There are people pulling out of China to go to other countries as well for very specific reasons. So, got it. And what do you make, by the way, just of the of the larger thesis? I mean, do you think this is something that's actually happening? Or are we blowing it out of proportion? I mean, I'd, I'd love to hear your opinion. No, I think it's definitely happening, and I think people are doing it to de-risk their supply chain. I think India is now really starting to pick up quite a bit of business that would have formerly gone into China. So in some cases, it's the decision is never take it to China. Uh, when people are offshoring now, it's taken into India and some other locations uh, that can support it at a very competitive cost structure. And they have pretty solid engineering talent, lots of highly educated people. So it's a great solution versus China. What factors, Keith, if you can enlighten us, are not present in India that make it more appealing than, than China? You know, I think the government's uh, attitude towards business now today, you've seen the Chinese government actually even start taking control of their own country's businesses. And so I think there's the fear now that at what point you say something wrong on Twitter or whatever it may be, and the Chinese government turns on you and all of a sudden your business is locked down over there because they're doing it to their own businesses and taking control and replacing leadership and so forth. That's a big concern. You don't have that factor at all in India. And India used to have a big problem with, before Modi got there with uh, too many changes to the tax structure, tax code, that really kept a lot of investment out of the country because people would invest, they make a change to the tax code, next thing you know, it's not competitive anymore. Since Modi's been in office, it's it really stabilized it. So you've been seeing quite a bit of more you know, investment going into India. It was a small piece, you know, us being able to reduce our logistics cost and fuel burn and so forth to get the product to our customers certainly was one of the, the key factors that we had in, in making our decision. But in general, I think we try to make sure that the product itself is really supporting the environment uh, and the use of our materials and the processes we choose. So we try to do that regardless of what 
area in the world that we're manufacturing in. And finally for you, Keith, perhaps you could frame it for us this way. If someone were to come to you, you know, a colleague, uh, uh, anybody you might be acquainted with and say, hey, what are two or three things I need to keep in mind? What are two or three things I need to make sure I figure out before taking capacity out of China and moving it back to the U.S., U.K., Mexico, whatever it might be? What would you suggest from your experience? What are the most important things to figure out on the front end before embarking on on a journey like this? Yeah, I, I think that's a good question. And I think a lot of people kind of have a blind spot there to you have to consider the entire supply chain. You can't just consider your point of manufacturing. And by that, I mean, if you're not making sure you have raw goods availability nearby to where you're manufacturing, or if a vast majority of, of that material is still coming out of China, you still have the same level of risk. Um, so it's it's very important that you're going all the way down to the raw good level there. Understanding the point of consumption, for sure, doesn't make sure make any sense to near shore if then you're exporting a lot of things back out to Asia afterwards. So point of consumption, big, you know, big thing for you to look at. And look at your your future roadmaps. Where do you intend to sell your products if you're growing? For us primarily, we sell into North America. So point of consumption um, consideration was huge for us. Let's get this back closer to home. And that improves our flexibility, reduces our inventory levels, um, improves our service level to our customers, had a, a lot of benefits for us. Wow, plenty of nuance there. There are very few slam dunks in the investment world, but you've certainly helped us chart a path here to understanding this nearshoring, reshoring, and deglobalization uh, trend. So, uh, you know, Keith Cochran, Chief Operating Officer, President of Cooler Technology Group, thank you so, so much for joining us on Double Take. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Investment Management North America LLC, NIMNA, or the firm, is a registered investment advisor and subsidiary of the Bank of New York Mellon Corporation, BNY Mellon. The firm was established in 2021, comprised of equity and multi-asset teams from an affiliate, Mellon Investments Corporation. The firm is part of a group of affiliate companies that individually or collectively provide investment advisory services under the brand Newton, or Newton Investment Management, Newton. Newton currently includes NIMNA and Newton Investment Management Limited, Newton Limited. Any statements of opinion constitute only current opinions of NIMNA, which are subject to change and which NIMNA does not undertake to update. This publication or any portion thereof may not be copied or distributed without prior written approval from the firm. Statements are correct as of the date of the material only. This document may not be used for the purpose of an offer or solicitation in any jurisdiction or in any circumstance in which such offer or solicitation is unlawful or not authorized. The information in this publication is for general information only and is not intended to provide specific investment advice or recommendations for any purchase or sale of any specific security. Some information contained herein has been obtained from third-party sources that are believed to be reliable, but the information has not been independently verified by NIMNA. 
NIMDA makes no representations as to the accuracy or the completeness of such information. No investment strategy or risk management technique can guarantee returns or eliminate risk in any market environment, and past performance is no indication of future performance. The indices referred to herein are used for comparative and informational purposes only and have been selected because they are generally considered to be representative of certain markets. Comparisons to indices as benchmarks have limitations because indices have volatility and other material characteristics that may differ from the portfolio, investment, or hedge to which they are compared. The providers of the indices referred to herein are not affiliated with NIMNA, do not endorse, sponsor, sell, or promote the investment strategies or products mentioned herein, and they make no representation regarding the advisability of investing in the products and strategies described herein. Any forward-looking statements speak only as of the date they are made and are subject to numerous assumptions, risks, and uncertainties, which change over time. Actual results could differ materially from those anticipated in forward-looking statements. If distributed in the UK, EMEA, Australia, New Zealand, this podcast is issued by Newton Limited and may be deemed a financial promotion. Newton Limited is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, FCA, 12 Endeavour Square, London, E20, 1JN, in the conduct of investment business. Register in England, number 01371973. NIM is also registered as investment advisors with the Securities and Exchange Commissions, SEC, to offer investment advisory services in the United States. If distributed in Canada, this podcast is issued by either Newton Limited, which is availing itself of the International Advisors Exemption, IAE, in the following Canadian provinces, Alberta, British Columbia, Ontario, and Quebec. The IAE is in compliance with National Instrument 31-103, Registration Requirement, Exemptions, and Ongoing Registrant Obligations, or NIMNA, which is availing itself of the IAE in the following Canadian provinces, Alberta, British Columbia, and Manitoba. The IAE is in compliance with National Instrument 31-103, Registration Requirements, exemptions, and ongoing registrant obligations.